So welcome, I'm Ruth Renger, founder of Conscious Leaders. This podcast is about providing you with disruptive insights from human leaders. They're progressive leaders willing to talk about the highs and lows of business, so you can take away both their philosophy and how it plays out practically day to day. Learn about the podcast and us at consciousleaders.org.uk. To kick off this year's interview, we have Grace Francis, Chief Experience Officer at Centre Interactive. Now, Grace is brilliant, and as a non-binary person, is keen that others feel comfortable with how they might feel different. I started by asking them how they got to where they are now. I, uh, I started off in big tech, very measured environment, where uh, everything is reviewed with facts and evidence, and I spent a lot of time in what we then called user experience, defining those very early experiences online, um, on the days when we used to get a holiday online or buy some shopping online but not do much else. And after a while, I moved into an agency space, again with large bits of technology, new emergent technology, working out the early days of things like Instagram, how we might shop on social networks, and we all thought we'd be doing that instantly. And uh, again, moving into my leadership career, it became very interesting for me to recognise it wasn't just about getting something right, the best and fastest way to do a thing, to make money, um, also working out how we were spending our time online, uh, how we were using our attention, uh, and how we were spending time connecting together as well. And today I find myself working for uh, Accenture Interactive, which is 25,000 people across the world, currently headed up by David Droger, um, one of the most creative people in my industry. And uh, I spend about 70% of my time working with Interactive and leading on projects uh, that can be anything from the most emergent technology uh, to changing the way you might go and pop into a supermarket to shop. Uh, mm. And about 30% of my time uh, encouraging you to engage with certain brands that might be a TV advert, um, that might be a campaign, uh, that might be how the company shows up in the world uh, beyond what they sell to you. What's your kind of approach to leadership in general? So this podcast is about conscious leadership and I'm really interested kind of about your philosophy. For me, I think it's very important to recognise, especially in the space of technology, but I would argue in all leadership roles, the people who are coming into the business at that very early level know things you don't know. So I think humility is absolutely essential. I think engaging um, with your workforce as peers and equals, treating people with respect is key. But for me, so much of it is about influence rather than ownership. Um, In the position I'm in, no matter how grand my job title is, I can walk into a room and it can be that a peer or a client might not give me the respect I deserve. I'm not a six foot one white guy. Um, Sometimes I wish I was, but I'm not. (laughs) And so I have to work harder and I do that through influence. And that gives me the freedom uh, and the reminder to treat everyone else with respect as well. I have to earn that respect every time I engage with someone. And I want to make sure that others around me are given the respect I'm not always given myself. Mm. And how does that play out practically? So you're you're saying that you're there to to offer people respect, to help them see valued and help their opinion be important, I guess right from the get-go, if they're a new starter, for example. How does that play out in what you might say to them or how you might treat them? I think it's about creating a space uh, that sits outside of dominant culture and recognising even positive work cultures, where I work right now is a very positive work culture, still work within a hierarchy. So I like to create an hour where we're in a room and we stop thinking about what discipline we have, what job title we have, and we're just going to act as equals. And I like to think if we're um, if we were stranded on a desert island, my data person wouldn't say to me, 
Well, if they're data to crunch and fold their arms, they would get a bucket and they would go and find some water. And that freedom of the jobs to be done helps people stop sitting within their boxes, stop thinking about their OKRs or KPIs and start engaging as fully fledged humans. And once we do that for an hour at a time, it accidentally slips into Monday to Friday and it mm. becomes the norm. So this sounds quite an interesting practice. So you're setting aside an hour where you're kind of all putting down your job titles and just seeing what needs to be done. Yeah. And is this a regular thing? How does this... Absolutely, yes. I tend to start it by thinking about R&D projects because, again, there's a freedom to say if there isn't the pressure, we can think about things more freely Mm. and then slowly integrate that into the most essential projects in the building. But I do find if people are looking at uh, something speculative or they're looking at a piece of work that isn't as glamorous um, or as essential, they can think a little bit more freely than they otherwise would. Mm. So what you're feeling that you're getting out of it is more, more knowledge, more ideas freedom absolutely and by creating that environment of um, relaxed trust it does naturally spread into other parts of the work but also it's um it's the way to evidence to staff that that's actually happening as opposed to saying you know how many times have you entered a meeting where someone says this is a safe space you can't declare something's a safe space <laughs> and, uh, and then demand that everybody suddenly you know fess up to how they're feeling that's not going to work and um, so by creating these environments but not putting a label on them again People are just a bit more relaxed. They don't know what they're going into, and so they just enjoy it. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I wonder if this speaks to kind of ownership as well of projects. Because when we sit within our silos and we're like, well, this is my what I'm good at, so I'll give that and then I'll sod off or pass it on to the next person. Does that also help people own the outcomes or own where you're going? Yeah, it absolutely does. And I think we're seeing two things. The first is um, that possessiveness Uh, this is my tiny corner, does go away. But often that possessiveness is about the pressure to perform. And the second thing we see that's so wonderful is often the people who are um, expected to deliver, and that might be the strategist, that might be the experience expertise, it might be a creative in the other types of work that I do, suddenly relax. They stop being resentful of having to listen to someone else because they've got to go and get a job after this meeting, they've got to get the job done. And they suddenly see there are other people who can support them and contribute. So the pressure comes off as well. And then we start to see really good work because when I have an idea and someone else contributes to it, I'm willing to hear how that will be better. As opposed to saying, well, my idea must be better than your idea. It's no longer combative or competitive. Um, it starts to be an accumulation of thought and suddenly something original is on the table. Hmm. And that environment that's not combative, not competitive, that sounds like it's going to take some fostering. Yeah. yeah. What else really makes that real? For me, I think it's about um, individual one-to-one relationships with every member of my team and being vulnerable with them, showing a humanity to them within the bounds that they want. Some people don't want to know about you. They just want to get work done, and that's acceptable as well. But then it's about trying to start those connections with each other. And one of the things I do is use the... Uh, the labels and the structure of hierarchy of work to be the first sign of removing um, bias, conscious or unconscious, for our identities as well. So when we think about um, who we are holistically, when we think about our race, our gender, our sexuality, our age, um, rather than talking about that up front, we use, um, well, hierarchy of terms, I'm an MD and you're not an MD, all of that kind of stuff. Um, to start to break that down and then suddenly people are um, treating each other as humans and treating each other as holistic people mm. rather than just the person that works in the data department. Mm. 
And what else kind of helps break down the kind of... Because what I'm hearing is that this isn't about hierarchy. This is about, you know, it's all coming together. What else helps? Because I feel like in a maybe a traditional organisation that there can be a fear of... You know, you don't want to say the wrong... You might round your peers, you might say whatever you want. But when, as soon as, like, senior people come in the room, it's a bit like, oh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're then going to start being more professional, more sensible or something. And I wonder there's, if there's something lost there and maybe the play's gone, maybe the, the fun has gone. Like, what helps take away the fear? So one of the most interesting things I've realised is the more senior a person the more they want to throw off the shackles. <laughs> and so I've, I've sat in uh, workshops with incredibly senior clients, with CEOs of wealth management firms, and got them to role play pensioners with our retirement fund. Um, I, want, I once saw someone completely of their own free will um, role play where they climbed under a table despite the fact um, they were a CEO the year I was born. And that's absolutely freeing. So, um, But of course, what we're talking about here is the hierarchy of how can I be relaxed when my boss is in the room and my boss's boss is in the room? And I think the answer to that, again, is it's my responsibility to get the most senior person to opt in. And when they have opted in, all of us opt in, and then that will that halo extends to the lunch break and maybe it extends to the performance review. And it takes time to extend to the performance review. But by being able to have um, just human interactions in those moments, we're doing better work. And also that means people in power can hear, do you know what, it would be really good if you could do this rather than that. I think most managers presume they're doing a good job unless you tell them otherwise. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like kind of things like permission, permission to play. And, it, and, and practically, are you talking to that senior person and saying something like, I don't know, it'd be great if you, I saw you having fun in the meeting the other day, it'd be great if you brought some of that into this team because I know there's a bit of nervousness meeting you or it, it, how would you actually introduce that with the most senior? I think it has to be not letting the magic trick be seen. I think you have to go into the room and disarm those people. I think if you ask someone to play or to be relaxed, they instantly feel like they're being watched, <laughs> even, if, even if they want to, even if they're trying to do what you're asking them to do. And so it's my responsibility to be the first person in the room to do that. And then they see me leading a session doing that and they comply. Again, I actually, this is one of the spaces where because I don't fit in, I don't look like everyone else. I just don't have the same identity as everyone else especially in, in consulting, you know, in, in the wider high street, you wouldn't pick me out in any way. But in a consulting space, I am different. I'm five foot two, I'm eight stone, I'm absolutely tiny, I'm non-binary. And um, I have that permission to go in and be different. And it's like, well, this thing's a bit weird. It's that thing Grace is doing. And then within 15 minutes, everyone's like, wow, this is interesting. This is fun. This is different. And of course, it's a relief. And if I can, if I can get that magic trick going, um, I have to treat everybody uh, as if nobody's in on it. I have to be the magician and then everybody else will come through. And the ultimate result is belonging. All of us actually enjoying working together in a different way and feeling like we want to come back for more. Mm. It sounds like you're really role modeling, but also setting a tone. Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit different than maybe a traditional professional yeah. tone. And again, um, because I don't have that power and the authority, even with the right job title, even with a fantastic set of credentials, winning lots of work, all the things that we judge our performance by in work, um, because I am different, I have the permission to do that. And I don't look like I'm going to change the whole company. People don't see me as a threat. 
I'm always a surprise. So perhaps, again, if I had a more um, traditional role of power and a more traditional identity, people would think, well, hang on, the whole company's changing. We can't have this. Can't have uh, this relaxed collaboration all of the time. We're not going to hit our targets. Um, But it's not all of the time. It's just this strange thing I'm doing that they quite like. And then over a number of years, it becomes part of the culture. Mm -hmm. It's funny that sometimes play or, or... having a good time can be seen at odds with commercial success but actually it could be just a way to get more of it if people are relaxed and yeah. you know in flow in absolutely yeah i definitely think it can but we um we have our targets and we have our pressure and again um consulting is incredibly meritocratic if you do well then you will fly and you will have gorgeous rewards um several times a year and that feels fantastic but if you're not doing well for your own reasons or for reasons um, beyond your control, it can feel very panicky and suddenly the need to get your head down and just get things done, um, you know, presses on all of us, whether you're a first year analyst or, you know, you've been doing it for two decades. Maybe this is worth exploring this, um, because I've seen this myself with my partner that works in consulting, that, you know, if you're doing well, you can soar. And if you're not, there can be a bit of a, um, what's the word, a discordance there or something. How, how would you operate with someone in your team that was struggling either performance-wise or in their own in their own personal life? Sometimes the two are linked to two, of course. But yeah, I think it's I think it's very very similar to sports performance. In a single moment, if you start to choke, you panic and you stop you stop being able to engage your brain. And I think the first thing to do is to be able to look at the circumstances and try to take some of that pressure off. It's not always possible, especially when we're in senior roles. I can't, I can't get rid of your targets. What I can do is, again, create a space where we can say, right, if we take the pressure off for this period of time, let's just see how we can operate again. And a lot of the time, what people need is that chance to catch their breath, to, to recenter themselves and remember that actually they're very good at their jobs. Um, if there's something outside in the world, I think that requires us to be more human. I don't know anyone who hasn't suffered a bereavement um, in the last two years. I don't know anyone who hasn't suffered health problems. Um, and that, in a very strange way, one of the few things that is good, means that we are more empathetic to that situation. It's easy for us to say, I understand what you're going through, I've seen or experienced something similar myself. And kind of going back to your own experience of being non-binary, perhaps from a personal perspective, first, could you tell us a little bit about how that has played out for you, maybe some of the highs and lows, and then maybe we'll take that into a bit of leadership too. What's your journey been? Yeah, absolutely. So um, for the whole of my life, I have, I was born into a woman's body, but I don't feel like a woman and I don't want to be treated like a woman, including the good bits, but also the sort of the patriarchy that comes with it, how a woman is um, treated in work and what's expected of a woman. Um, and a couple of years ago, uh, once I got a C-suite title, I decided to go to my CEO and say, I want to tell you who I am and how I am, and I want I want my um, my pronouns to reflect that. So I use they them pronouns rather than she her pronouns. And um, broadly, I got a very very positive response um, from the person sitting immediately opposite me. How those people feel when I leave the room, I don't always know, um, and uh, maybe I don't have the right to know that as well. And what I do know is the conduct that they treat me with at work is freeing. Um, for me, I've always spent uh, a lifetime working in companies where I'm the person bringing the new shiny weird thing (laughs) and so being the person bringing the new shiny weird thing and being a bit weird um, actually kind of goes hand in hand together so I've I've definitely coupled those probably unconsciously but I've definitely coupled those things together Um, so when I experience someone finding me 
at odds with our worldview, I can say, well, it's because I'm bringing in this new type of work, as opposed to it's because I exist in a way that perhaps they didn't know um, was even a thing before. And it sounds like you've got a really positive experience now, um, broadly from Accenture, but have you had any less well-received experiences in the past or, you know, how have people dealt with that identity in the past that, in a way that might have been, you know, good or bad? Yeah, I think what I do experience is, um, is forms of rejection all of the time. And one of the first questions I ask is, is this rejection external? Is it coming from the other person or not? am I seeing it because I'm feeling uncomfortable? it's a bit of both probably I think but what I do find is um, I don't fit in the way I used to when I identified as a woman I could sit in a room with women and even though I don't have children and I haven't taken a traditional path that way um, I'm pretty much accepted but now it's very hard to place me and um, I think women don't know if they can talk about how hard it is to be a woman in front of me anymore and I don't have that camaraderie that I used to have Uh, and so I do feel a little bit like I'm a party of one Um, Very occasionally I'll meet another trans person, but a lot of people who are transgender are moving from one binary to the other. I'm a man, I want to be a woman, I'm a woman, I want to be a man. Um, Or I've always been that and I now get to have uh, my outside identity match my inside identity. Um, For me, it's more like saying none of the boxes are applicable. Mm. Yeah, I'm not taking any any box. Exactly, yes, Mm. yes. None of the above. And I think for for leaders, and I don't want to sort of excuse um, leaders in any way, but for leaders in organisations who've been listening to this podcast, there's quite a lot going on in society. There's a lot to be aware of, and and I wondered if if what kind of advice or guidance would you give someone if if they've got someone who is trans or non-binary in their organisation, or they're becoming aware of that, or maybe there's just rumours they're hearing about and they haven't had that you know direct conversation. What would you encourage? from their behaviour? So I would say it's about putting policy and evidence in place that trans people, um, non-binary people, um, even people uh, who are gay, are protected without calling out individuals. So showing, even if you feel you have no people who are trans or non-binary in your business, this is how we welcome and include those people. Accenture have amazing policies that see not just uh, the person who's transitioning supported, but their entire workforce, everybody around them, their manager and everyone around them, gets training to make sure they understand and feel comfortable themselves. That's pretty radical. But I think one of the important things we recognise, and we see a lot in universities actually, is even if we suspect someone may have a trans identity, they might not be comfortable being out in that context. They might be out at home, but not at work, at university, but not at home. And so we need to make sure that we're not pushing people uh, to share something they're not ready to share. Mm. So it's more about an environment of inclusivity in a, a tone, it sounds like. Yeah, and often I think we can we can project that in different ways. And if you are minoritized or marginalized, if you feel othered in any way, I you can look for evidence of different groups, even if they're different. I have gone into workplaces and seen a practicing Muslim being treated well and thought, okay, there's a chance I will also be treated well here. Mm. And that really, really helps. Uh, I have a friend who um, told me an anecdote the other day that um, they, they are transgender, they were sitting in a cafe, and uh, someone came in for an interview, a barista came in for an interview, and a week later the barista said, I'm gay and I took this job here because I saw you were treated well. Mm. And that's lovely, right? That's a wonderful story. What an affirmation. And that's what we need to do. Um, if, we can live, uh, if we can live in these practices and we can treat each of us well at each times, it creates an environment where still a leap of faith, there's still a jump, but you can take that jump. Mm. 
It's more about creating an environment where people are seen as accepted, it sounds like. And you said that essentially have some great policies around this. Is there anything that, that you think really shows that? Yeah, I think a lot of it is um, about understanding that if you are transgender, there's no finish point, there's no absolute complete point. And so uh, you might be changing throughout the whole of your life. That could be physical and medical. Not all of us can medically transition or want to. Um, but Accenture is very, very good at accepting you in the point that you're at and helping you get to the point where you are. And so if you are changing or if you are choosing to share things you haven't shared before, there's a whole safety net and structure around that. And we're also very, very good with pronouns. I walk into meetings, it's very normal for me to um, I say walk into meetings, everything's on Teams at the moment, but um, it's very normal for me to join a meeting and be with 20 people I do not know. And I start every meeting with, hello, I'm the chief experience officer, I'm non-binary, I use the pronouns they, them, if you want to talk about it afterwards, give me a shout. But if I say something interesting enough, please refer to me with those pronouns. And um, that normally gets a laugh for saying something interesting. But it, mm. it, you know, it, breaks, it breaks the ice. But also I, I blindly go in with incredibly senior people, both within my network um, and the organisation and clients as well, and I just throw myself in. And the hope is that there's someone else sitting on the call, maybe an analyst off camera, um, or maybe a client on the other side of the table who thinks maybe I can share that too. I guess that's that what you talk to about setting the tone at the beginning of the meeting and kind of, as you put, breaking the ice, being a bit open, a bit vulnerable, that could affect the whole tone of the meeting for everyone. Yeah, and I also think that Sometimes we can turn up to work in a beautifully pressed white shirt, so it looks like everybody else's white shirt, but we feel, as an individual, all of us feel like individuals. It's an odd thing, but I remember when, when David Bowie died, so many people who wear white shirts and ties told me, well, you know, that was my guy, David Bowie was my guy, he's strange and I'm strange, mm-hmm. he doesn't fit in the world and I don't fit in the world. And I thought, yeah. of course, you don't, you don't have to have a mohawk um, or a bunch of piercings in your face or anything else to indicate that you feel different or you feel like an individual. Maybe we all feel a bit different, but we don't feel... Yeah. We've become a bit too white shirt, press white shirtish exactly. at work, particularly. Yeah. And we're told to put that white shirt on, and it's also a massive power. I, I definitely get up in the morning, and when I dress in my corporate best, I feel invincible. <laughs> I've done all the right things, and I walk into a room, and I open my mouth, and within 90 seconds, you know, nothing can stop me. It feels incredible. It's, it's an armour, it's a defence, it's a costume. But underneath that... You know, when you get to the office picnic, wouldn't it be great if we were wearing, you know, bright colours or the band t-shirt we love or whatever it is, and we could share a little bit of that. And these things feel like that surface, but it's the first step before saying to someone, actually, I, I, you know, I'd love to tell you that, uh, you know, my partner is the same gender as me, um, or whatever it is you choose to say, share, mm-hmm. and share it safely and knowing that someone's going to say, great, are they here? Yeah. When I try and make quite a particular effort to say, my partner, she... Because I notice that sometimes when people talk about the partner, you're like, this is this elusive thing. Is it a man or a woman? And you're maybe curious, and it might be that they don't feel ready to say that in front of you. But for me, it's a little, just a mini bit of role modelling, because it's like, let's just make this more normal. Absolutely. And again, in positions of, of power and authority, um, influence in your role, um, how good is it to know, okay, well, immediately I can, I can be safe around you, I can tell you about my thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Where does the future go with this? Like, if, you're, if you've got aspirations about how you want to drive this, it seems like, to me, say if I'm saying it wrong, but you've got a huge drive for humanity and people connecting more to each other. Where could it go? What's, what's possible? I think the next step is recognising um, 
this is beyond identity this has to be about individuals and how individuals can fit in and we've seen over the last two years we've worked from home and in many ways um, I don't think we're going to return to the office and I think we need to fight for that. I think in the Second World War, women went into the workforce and they wore trousers. And when the war ended, those things couldn't be taken away from them. And we need to hold on to the freedom of uh, not being chained to a nine to five, a Monday to Friday. I see people bathing their babies. I see people having a nap because they've got a fatigue condition. Um, I see people who are physically disabled having the freedom to join meetings um, where they couldn't, literally couldn't access a building. And, uh, you know, this is, this is in all sorts of industries, in all sorts of roles. And for me, what I want to see is people participating and having a space at the table because of the potential that they have and uh, not being blocked out because of um, neurodiversity, physical disability, um, access and ability to be part of it. Uh, all I want is... Um, a few hours to use your brain and use my brain together and see what we come up with. Everything else, everything else um, is up for grabs and can be negotiated as we need. Hmm. And, and how do you think you'd like to, and this is a, maybe a slight leap, but how do you think you'd like to push your own behaviour to do that and influence those around you? Because it seems like you know, you've got this very progressive outlook and, and you have a power to influence here. So, so what's key in making that culture move, continue to move. Yeah. So I think within work, it's radical inclusivity. Um, I, I have worked with a person who's now a very deep friend of mine, who is a white man who went to Eton. And when I learned to give him empathy, he had capacity to give me empathy. So I think radical inclusivity actually looks like saying, well, how do we also acknowledge in work the people of the most privileged position? And the fact that the, the nature of life is, you know, it it's can be long and fantastic, but it can also be hard. Um, and it can be that you can have all of the privilege within society and still be sweating blood at work. And that's not okay. So I think for me, the next jump is within the work environment to, uh, to offer the compassion I show to minoritized and marginalized people to people of great privilege as well. And I do, I think I can do it some of the time, but I think that's a, that's very much at odds with recognizing in the wider world um, that I don't think that can be the case at all. I think we have to really disrupt the white patriarchy. Um, but within the systems of work, I think if everybody, you know, there's a universal need to be understood. How can I ask someone of power and privilege to understand me if he doesn't feel understood himself? And that's the only way. So I have to come to you and say, tell me what's going on with you and get that trust. And only then can I say, do you know what it's like for a member of your staff who's black? She wants to tell you. Or do you know what it's like for a member of your staff who's gay or trans or disabled? They would like to tell you now. And, and that's, that's the next big jump. Mm. And that's also important because, I mean, even things like climate change is... It's very tempting to other people and go, well, they don't care or they don't get it or they're not doing enough. But if we're not listening, then how do we have a, a starting point? Yeah, and this is absolutely it. And it's about removing the idea of conflict. Nobody, I think, I think nobody wants to be told they're doing something wrong. I think that's a very universal statement. And it, I think it's very, very hard. And I think we see it a lot, a lot of the time with... Um, Again, with, with white men who feel that they may have been passed up, maybe they were in a working class background, maybe they've worked very hard for that position, 
maybe they weren't maybe they feel this is their destiny um but they can feel nudged out as well now i'm not saying that feeling is um equal to someone who's minoritized but if we ignore that feeling and trample over it we're never going to get them to listen to us Mm -hmm. and this kind of talks to a little bit about the theme of of masculinity at work and what it means to be a man something i'm very interested in um and it feels like we expect a lot of men in some ways we expect them to um perhaps not necessarily but perhaps still be a a strong breadwinner at least but then we expect them to be vulnerable and open and you know do loads of of extra kind of emotional awareness in a society where maybe that hasn't been so safe yeah absolutely if you've been conditioned to turn up show up present for your family unit bring home the bacon and uh, get on with it you know so many people i know say their relationships with their fathers or grandfathers consisted of a man coming home and reading the paper and wanting the children to go away right that's what i knew of my dad or my dad's dad and how cold is that how can we then say be vulnerable exactly (laughs) yes when 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 it stopped being permissible to cry at a funeral when you were 10 or 12 when it stopped being permissible to fall over and have a scratched knee and have someone cuddle you now please tell us your deepest vulnerabilities so no that's not fair we have to work harder, and um, we—I think we do need to do that. I think, I think the cosmic joke is the patriarchy is also awful to men. So, what helps with that then? How do we set a tone that's that's kind of safe for maybe more traditionally successful types? To because it sounds like the offshoot of that is more inclusion for everyone. Yeah, yeah. I think first of all, it's understanding that it can't be forced. You can't um, you can't demand anything from anyone. And again, I think it has to be about showing in small pockets, this is possible. Wouldn't it be nicer if you didn't have to be competitive all of the time, if you weren't fighting all of the time? And um, I think sometimes for people in very successful careers, you know, it's, um, it's a marathon or it's a long, long swim into the ocean. If you can just hold on to the buoy for a little bit and have a rest, sooner or later it's going to be better to get in the boat and <laughs> you don't have to swim alone you don't have to do that but that has to be first by saying and showing what it is saying does nothing you have to create those spaces to show that it works and i think if we need to we can tie it back to performance corporate performance um, you'll do better if you feel better um, i think i don't think we should have to make it about that but if we do then then you know there's evidence to say it works it's better for all of us it's better for the company if your staff aren't tired and exhausted and fighting against each other mm. yeah it's really interesting kind of comment about performance or performance measures as well because some of this stuff feels hard to measure but yet but yeah i'm wondering whether we could measure it or at least make it you know my partner was talking about something about whether um somehow clients could be rewarded if the team had a good uh, experience with them so if they rated them seven out of ten for like respect or inclusivity or friendliness or helping them keep to their hours that they somehow could get something back and i I wondered like how we reward good behavior yeah i love that i think that's really key and again one of the best things about consulting as opposed to an agency model that i've worked in before is that consulting comes as equal partners to the table we must treat each other with respect we're not here to play a subservient role where when i work in a creative agency um we will do whatever the client asks for whenever they ask for it i've, I've seen people 
um, run into a restaurant next door and beg to borrow plates so we can have nicer plates for lunch. <laughs> All sorts of silly things. Just it's it's very subservient. The desire to please is is crucial, and that filters into the way everybody is treated. Where actually, I think in consultancy, we come to the table as two individuals. I think the next step is the idea of bringing the personal and the professional together. I'm working at the moment on a project that's asking CEOs um, to consider that ESG impact and in doing so, asking what does it mean for your professional self when you sit down in a room, all you're thinking about is must hit my target, just like I did in that in that finance job, must get my job done. But at home, your daughter is begging you to buy a Prius for the environment and you say yes. Um, so how do we bring the personal and the professional together? And when those two things happen, when we start to sit in a boardroom and think about the planet, for an example, but also we start to think about the consultancy or the agency that we've hired, the people who are sitting there, um, we will actually have a better experience as well. Um, I think giving rewards for good behaviour means that uh, there's a condition to it. Do this and we'll give you that. What I'd love is that, um, that the consultants are treated well, that you think, don't work Sunday night. You don't need to work Sunday night, we can have it on Tuesday instead. Mm. Well, that sounds like a bit of a wish for the future. A good oh, wish. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, I mean, you've worked in, in consulting. You've probably experienced a lot of you know, tough, long hours in finance as well. How, how do you look after yourself? So for me, I think it's about, um, especially at the moment, we spend so much lives on screens, and screens feed the eyes, but they really starve the other senses. So I love to be out of the house, being in nature, Um, whether it's walking through the park or a forest or I I live right by the river so being by the river and just enjoying that full sensory experience and my favourite experience of recent days was um, walking to a wonderful coffee shop about a mile away in the pouring rain and a couple of years ago that would have been awful and it felt wonderful the air was fresh and the rain was cool on my skin and I got a lovely hot chocolate and walked back and it was a great start to the day Mm. anything else or anything else you'd like to do more of um, I think reading physical books are really good. So again, away from screens. Um, but I think we can live such different lives diving into a book. Uh, I have to confess, despite the fact I'm nearly 40, I play a lot of video games. And um, and that, that can be a really wild experience. And I, I just spent I just played a video game where I was uh, being someone looking at a fire watch out on a mountain. I played another video game where I was a detective trying to work out what was important to me as a person the political edge underneath it and you can just live these tiny lives for 10 hours 15 hours and um how refreshing is that Mm. just to do something else put someone else's hat on it's like being mr ben you get to do it for a little bit and then you can jump back in and uh put your corporate shirt back on and get on with life Mm, it's a bit of escapism oh totally i think that's needed i think we all need that at the moment a lovely pocket of another world and then we can dip back into this one when Mm. we're ready Well, thank you, Grace. I really love your approach to being inclusive as listening to everyone, including those that we view as privileged. It feels like from a place of listening, change can happen. Thanks also for sharing so openly how you get people to feel comfortable. Really practical stuff. I'm Ruth Frenger, and you've been listening to the Conscious Leaders podcast, showcasing the human side of great leadership so you can learn about what it's really like and gain both philosophical and practical takeaways. To learn more about us and what we do to help leaders build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, visit ConsciousLeaders.org.uk.